So, like Marcus said, we're going to be reading from the book of Luke uh, in chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 13. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn that he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Eslai, the son of Magi, the son of Mark the son of Mattathias, the son of Semai, the son of Josach, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Cosm, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jeram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattathai, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, 
the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahum, uh, the son of Saruk, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Yeah, I think it's worth a hand just getting all those names right. Is that what you're clapping for, Rick? It was pretty good, wasn't it? Uh, welcome to a new year at Uni Church. If we haven't met, my name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors around here. And especially if tonight's your first night with us, can I say you are really welcome here. I hope you have a fantastic night. You're probably wondering, what have I come along to? What kind of church is this that meets in a school hall? There's almost no one here over the age of, what, 30? I, I guess you could call me 30, 48. Um, what kind of church are we? Well, I'm hoping you're going to notice a couple of things about us tonight. Uh, I'm hoping that you'll notice that we're friendly. Um, I hope we make you, make you feel welcome. And I, I hope if you stick around, you'll make loads and loads of friends here. I actually uh, met my wife in my first week uh, at uni. Uh, we happened to sit down next to each other which means that it's a dangerous thing to sit next to someone in O-Week. Just have a look at the person next to you. They could turn out to be your life partner. Which means some of you are now thinking, I should have paid more attention who I sat next to, right? The other thing I'm hoping that you notice about us tonight is that we try to take the Bible really seriously. Here's why. We believe that the Bible is God's Word. This is a book, the book in front of you, or the thing you're reading on your phone, was actually written by a divine being, true human being. But that's actually the real words of God. And that makes it more worth studying than anything else you'll ever come across. So I'm really hoping that by the time you finish uni, you will know the Bible better than you know physio. Well, you know the Bible better than, you know, medicine or engineering. That's actually why we try here at Unichurch to push you guys pretty hard in the course. They're a bit longer than normal. They're a bit meatier than average. I want you to have to think when you come along to church. 
And I want you to feel as well, because when you think about it, God wants us to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want you to love God as well. But I'm keen for you guys to use those brains that got you into university. Really, we, what we're going to do is treat you like adults and read the Bible like adults. And so if that's your first night, welcome. I'm really glad you're here. And if you've come back, I hope you had a really great summer. It was, it was kind of a nicer summer than we thought it might have been, right? We could be in Melbourne. Over the summer, our family changed forever. I've, after 25 years, 26 years I've been married to Emma now, after 26 years, Emma finally caved and we got a puppy. Is he up on the screen? There he is. That's, that's little Percy, the miniature schnauzer. And already, I've got to say, that dog has wormed his way into our hearts. I sit there at night watching TV, his head on my lap, me scratching his tummy, his little farts perfuming the air. In the Boy, does he stink. We, I kind of hope one of the advantages of getting a dog is I could blame my farts on him. The thing is, nothing smells as bad as our dog's farts. You don't want to be associated with them, but I've just grown to love the little whippy whooper, is what we call him. But one thing we have agreed on is that the name Percy just is not grand enough for, for such a magnificent animal. I mean, look at him, he's majestic. And so we've actually kind of added to his name somewhat. He is no longer just Percy. His full name is Sir Percival Adlington Brown III Esquire, heir to the Duchy of Cornwall and sundry honorifics, defender of the faith, protector of the realm, commander of Her Majesty's fleet and all-round good guy pooch. That is the name that we've given him, because that's a name befitting Percy's magnificence. A little hard to fit on a dog tag and a little embarrassing at the dog park, but it kind of works. Titles are funny like that, aren't they? Give someone a title and anyone sounds impressive. Ordinary old Bob suddenly sounds like someone when you call him Sir Robert. I've always thought that Scott was a particularly unimpressive name undignified name for a national leader, right? But Prime Minister ScoMo, well, that sounds so much better, doesn't it? Titles just sound impressive. But here's what they really are designed to do. What titles are really designed to do is tell you how seriously you're meant to take this person. So if you meet someone and they are the assistant to the deputy vice cleaner at Subway, you know you don't have to take that person very seriously, right? But if you meet someone and they've got a title like chief executive officer or president, all of a sudden you know that you've got to take this person seriously, let alone if you meet someone whose title is your majesty or the emperor, that's a whole new level of seriousness, isn't it? Well, tonight we're going to meet Jesus. If you're new here at Unichurch, it's actually a really good night to come along because not only is it the beginning of the uni year, we're actually at the point in the book of Luke where we meet Jesus face to face. We're actually a couple of weeks into Luke, but this is the first time where we meet Jesus face to face as an adult. And we're going to see Jesus given some titles tonight that will blow your socks off. We're going to see that Jesus is actually the most serious 
person in the universe, especially because the first title he's given is the biggest one of all. Just if you've got a Bible open, open up to Luke chapter 3. You always want to be bringing a Bible to uni church. If you can, it's always a good idea to take notes as well. Not because you're ever going to use them, but because taking notes is actually one of the best ways to switch your brain off. And so if you're one of the regulars, take notes. It makes it easier for everyone else around the table to do it. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. Now let's just stop and pause for a moment. Nothing to do with the talk. Here is one of the ways that you can tell that the Bible is meant to be taken seriously. Why are all those names there? Luke wants us to know that it's not writing a fairy tale. He's not writing just a story. He's writing history. And he wants to locate this story in history so that as you read it, you're going, nah, this thing, all this stuff actually did happen. Lots of people think the Bible's just a made-up fairy tale. No, no, no. Here's exactly when it happened and who was there to see it. And so when all of these people were ruling all these areas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So here is this fellow, John the Baptist. He is a prophet from God, a messenger from God. You can see that in verse 2, see in verse 2? The word of God came to John. So here's this guy. He is sent by God and his message, look in verse 4, is prepare the way for the Lord. John's message was God himself is coming. God himself is coming to earth. So look down in verse 16. John says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Someone is coming behind John who is so great that John is not even important enough to unstrap his sandal because he's God. Now just stop and think for a moment. What an extraordinary thing. What an amazing thing that God would walk on the earth. Sometimes people actually say to me, they say, I will not believe in God until I see him with my own two eyes. Sure, if God came to earth and stood in front of me right here, then I would believe in him. But all then, it's not going to happen. I have always been tempted to say, well, he did. Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago. Is it his fault you're 2,000 years too late? You should have been here on time. Then you would have seen him. I've never actually tried out that answer, but that's what John's saying. John is saying that God is coming to earth. Jesus is God come to earth. Which means that Jesus coming is a really, really big deal. John says it's time to landscape the place. Take a look at Luke 3 verse 4. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley should be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight and the rough way smooth. About 20 years ago, 
I visited the, the central West Town of Dubbo. I was there to visit a friend, go to the zoo, that kind of stuff. And so the friend showed me the main street. And he said that a decade or so before that, the whole of the main street had been dug up and relayed and it had all been made pretty and everything because the Queen was coming to visit Dubbo. And so they'd painted the buildings and they'd laid some paving and they'd put in potted palms and all those sorts of things. didn't really work because it's still Dubbo, right? And so, but they did their best. But that's what you do when someone important is coming to town, isn't it? You make the place all pretty. You, you kind of doll it all up so that the important person feels welcome. What do you do when God comes to town? Well, verse 4, when God comes to town, you really go all out. You flatten mountains. You raise up valleys. You make straight roads so that his chariot never, ever has to turn a corner. You give God the smoothest, straightest path possible. And that's what John is saying. He's saying, get ready because God is coming. Except John's not really that interested in streets. He's not even that interested in hills and valleys. He's interested in hearts. Because look what John says in verse 8. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree. And every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, what do we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So John says, God is coming. And when he comes, he's actually going to judge. He's going to put all, everything right. So make sure you're ready. Make sure that when he comes, it's not just straight roads. Make sure you're worshiping him. Make sure you're serving him. Never mind the main streets. They're actually an irrelevance. Look at your heart. That's what John is saying. You see, straight off the bat, right here at the beginning of Luke, John gives Jesus the biggest title you can ever give to anyone. He's not just anyone. He's God come to earth. Now, that makes Jesus a really serious prospect indeed, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I did not take Jesus seriously at all. To be honest to me, as I was growing up, Jesus seemed to me to be an irrelevant wood. He's irrelevant because it was all 2,000 years ago. And he was a wuss because the sandals, the flowing beard, the love your enemy stuff, it seemed to me that Jesus was just a bit weak. Why would I follow this guy? Why bother? Except if John's right, Jesus is anything but weak, is he? He's God. He's the creator. He's the judge. You cannot get a bigger title than God. Jesus' titles tell me that this is someone that I have to take more seriously than anyone who has ever lived. I wonder, have you ever taken Jesus that seriously? Well, look, before you answer that, God isn't the only title that Jesus gets given in this chapter. He's also called the King. So have a look in chapter 3, verse 21. Luke 3, 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus got baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. 
And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. After all of John's build-up, God's coming behind me, Jesus strides onto the scene. And everyone else is getting baptized in the River Jordan, and Jesus goes along too. But something happens when Jesus gets baptized that didn't happen to anyone else. God the Father speaks from heaven. God thunders his declaration about Jesus. And look what God says about Jesus in verse 21. He says, You are my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Now, there's a lot in those three statements, especially if you know your Old Testament. God starts by calling Jesus his son, which is actually another way of calling Jesus his king. So at this point, we actually need to clear up a little confusion. Because when you hear God say to Jesus, you are my son, what do you think God is saying to him? Well, most of us would think that God is saying that Jesus is God, wouldn't we? God's saying, you're God the Son. You're the second person of the Trinity. I'm God the Father. You're God the Son. There's also God the Holy Spirit. But when God says to Jesus, you're my son, we think he's saying, you're God, God the Son. That's what we think God's saying. And it's sort of right, because we have actually seen that Jesus is God. Jesus was always God, and he was with God in heaven before he came to earth. But actually, that's not what God is talking about here. When God calls Jesus his son here, he's actually calling him the king. Because in the Old Testament, the king of God's people was called the son of God. That was his title. You see it best in Psalm 2. So if you've got a Bible there, turn back with me to the middle of your Bible, to Psalm 2. This is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. The Old Testament's a big book. I'm giving you time to turn back. That's why I'm just talking. The Old Testament's a big book, but there are certain passages that you really always want to know about. And Psalm 2 is one of them. Let's read it together. This was the psalm that was, we think, was actually read at the coronation, the crowning of every, every Israelite king. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So here's the start of it. All the nations are plotting and they're conspiring together and they're rising up against God and see verse 2 there, against God's anointed. Now that word anointed is actually the word Christ or Messiah. It's the word for king, really, because you see, when you made someone a king, you anointed them with a little drop of oil. And so the nations are rising up against God and his anointed king, which kind of sounds scary for God, doesn't it? Is God in trouble with all these nations rebelling? But look in verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Of course God's not in trouble. What, is, what does God care about rebellious nations? He just laughs at them. He rebukes them. He terrifies them. 
And he says, look over there, I have installed my king on Mount Zion, my holy hill. That is, God's answer to the rebellious nations is he points to his king in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was built on top of Mount Zion. God's king is going to crush these rebellious nations. And then in verses 7 to 9, God's king actually speaks. So have a look. He says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Do you see what God calls his king here? His son. The son of God was the title for Israel's king. It was their way of saying, your majesty. And the reason he's called God's son is because God says, all you have to do is ask, and I'm going to give you the whole world as your inheritance. You won't just get a crown, you won't just get a scepter, you won't just get land. You'll get the whole wide world and you will rule all the nations completely. That's why he's called the son, because he inherits everything. And here's Jesus. This nobody really, nobody's ever heard of. He's from Galilee for crying out loud. But he gets baptized in the river Jordan and God says, you are my son. You are the son of God. You were always God the Son, but now you have become the Son of God too. See, Jesus' baptism was actually a massive moment in history. Compared to that, U.S. elections, COVID-19, world wars, they're nothing compared to Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan. Because those things are just temporary. But Jesus is being told here that he is the king who is going to rule forever. And he's not just Israel's king. He's the whole world's king. Look how the psalm ends. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, Jesus won't just rule Israel. The son won't just rule Israel. He's going to rule the whole world. And so every king, every person is warned, kiss the son, worship him, bow down to him, serve him, so that you won't be judged by him. Because there's no refuge from him. There's only refuge in him. You know, it's funny. I think this is an idea that Jesus is our king. It's kind of an idea that we really struggle to come to grips with in our day and age, and particularly in our country, don't we? Because we're really not used to the idea of a king, are we? I mean, sure, we have a queen, but let's face it, she doesn't have anything to do with us. She lives on the other side of the world. She's 130 years old. Even our government doesn't really have that much to do with us, do do they? Really, we're free just to get on and run our own lives. And so the idea that someone would be a king over me kind of jars with us a bit, doesn't it? But actually, what Psalm 2 is saying is, God's intention is for his son, his king, to be the ruler over everyone in the whole wide world, the whole universe even. That is, our Australian sense of independence actually doesn't fit with God's plans here. We think we're all our own masters. I'm going to run my life my way. I'm going to follow my dreams and all those things. And nobody's got the right to tell me what to do. But the fact is, 
Jesus does have that right. Jesus is God, God the Son, who also became the Son of God, the great King. And that means he rules every single one of us. That's why the next thing that Luke does is show us Jesus' family tree. Have a look where Luke goes to next. Chapter 3, verse 23. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matthew, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai. And it just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Right the way from Jesus' legal father, Joseph, right the way back through all these people in Israel, all these kings of Israel, through David, right the way back to Adam, the son of God. So see there, verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. It's this exhaustive list going from Jesus right the way back to God himself. Why is that there? Why on earth would Luke decide to put Jesus' family tree here all the way back to Adam? Well, I'll give you a couple of thoughts. One, Luke did not put it here to tell us how old the world is. See, some people have tried to use Luke's genealogy to tell us how old the world is. So in 1650, there was this Irish priest, a guy named James Usher, who used Luke's genealogy and the genealogies in Genesis to try and figure out how old is the world. And he came up with a figure that the world was created in 4004 BC. That is, he averaged out how long everyone was likely to live, and he counted it all the way back and came to 4004 BC. And so there are lots of Christians still who think that the world was created in 4004 BC. The thing is, that is not how genealogies actually work. They're not meant to be like our modern family trees. I mean, you've seen the way families do family trees these days. There's almost one nutter in every family who decides to work out the genealogy going back and who belonged to who, and they do all the great research. And then they, out of all of that, they discovered that our great-great-grandfather Hubert was Napoleon's boot cleaner or something like that. And the, our family trees are all about being precise, painstaking accuracy, exact birth date, exact death date, exact number of children. That is not what they use genealogies for at all. No, they use genealogies to connect one person with one or two really, really important people. And most of the details of successive generations were actually not that important to them. Really, all that was important to them was showing that this person was connected to these one or two incredibly important people. And it's not that they made up stuff, but they weren't as pedantic about the details as we are. They'd skip generations. They'd leave people out. They'd go through the line of uncles and all that sort of thing. That's why Luke's genealogy is actually different to Matthew's. I don't know if you've ever compared the two, but Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy, they're actually quite different And because it's not the detail that's crucial. It's linking two or three key people. So who does Luke want us to connect Jesus with? Well, really, the only important people in the genealogy are Jesus and Adam and God. God declares Jesus to be the Son of God, the King who's going to rule the whole world. 
And then Luke shows us a genealogy of Jesus going right the way back to Adam, the original son of God, from whom all the nations came. Adam was the original son of God, wasn't he? He was the original ruler of the whole world. God said to him, I'm giving you this world to rule. And every nation then came from Adam, and Jesus is the final Adam. That is, Luke's not trying to tell us here who all of Jesus' relatives were. He's showing us that Jesus is Adam's heir. Jesus is the new Adam, the new son of God, who's going to rule the whole world. Which is why the second part of what God says to Jesus at his baptism is just so weird. Because God doesn't stop at just saying to Jesus that he is the king. There's a second part to God's message at the baptism that we haven't covered yet. Just have another look at John chap- uh, at Luke chapter 3, verse 22. Luke chapter 3, verse 22. Jesus is getting baptized, and a voice came from heaven, You are my son! whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, we've already seen that bit, you are my son, makes perfect sense. That comes from Psalm 2. Where's the rest of it from? This, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Where's that from? Well, actually, that also comes from the Old Testament. It was said to a different person in the Old Testament. But the person those words were said to was nothing like the Son of God, was nothing like a king. That person was called the suffering servant. You see, from Isaiah chapter 42 to Isaiah chapter 53, there are a series of songs about a servant of God. You can see how the first one begins. Here is my servant whom I uphold my chosen one in whom I delight. And you can see actually how similar it is to the words of Jesus' baptism, can't you? In fact, in the original languages, it's even closer. At Jesus' baptism, God is echoing the words he said to the servant. You might say, well, so what? What's the big deal? So God calls Jesus his son, his king, and also his servant. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is, Those two people were nothing alike. They're so different that nobody ever thought to join those two people together. Nobody ever thought that the son and the servant might turn out to be the same person. Look what else is said of him. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. See, this servant, that's from Isaiah 53, this servant was nothing like glorious. He suffered. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. God judged him, not for his own crimes. No, he was punished for his people's transgressions. He was crushed for their iniquities. This servant, who nobody actually knew who he was, 
He was this kind of anonymous servant that was sung about, and everyone was like, who is this going to be? This servant was punished in other people's place. And in fact, it's only after he's killed that he ever gets any glory. It's only after that hour of God's punishment that in verse 11, he sees the light of life and is satisfied. You see, the suffering servant and the Son of God were nothing like each other. The Son was glorious, victorious, powerful, inheriting the whole world, the grandest title that could ever be given. But the servant was everything that was weak and despised. No one wanted to be the servant. The servant was wretched and suffering. And right here, for the first time in history, God says to Jesus, you're both. You are the Son of God. You are going to have glory. You're going to rule the whole world. Just ask me and I'll give you the nations as an inheritance. But first, you're going to suffer. Before you get the glory of the Son, you're going to be afflicted. You're going to be pierced and you're going to be crushed. You're going to be broken and you're going to be killed for your people. Jesus, your title is both Son and Servant. Can you imagine being Jesus in that moment? Can you imagine Jesus kneeling in the River Jordan at that point and he's praying away and having God tell you this? Can you imagine the kind of temptation that Jesus must have faced to try and be the son and slip out of being the servant? Because that would be the obvious thing to do, wouldn't it? If I can get the son and not have to be the servant, happy days. That's really great. That's why the next story is here. Because that's what Satan tempts Jesus to do in the next part of the story. After Jesus is baptized, he meets Satan in the desert. And for 40 days, Satan tempts Jesus to be the son and not the servant. So look how Satan begins Jesus' temptation. Chapter 4, verse 3, he says, If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. See, Satan's saying to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, then surely you should be comfortable, right? You shouldn't be hungry, Jesus. You should be full. Make this stone into bread. Take the kingship. Go for comfort. The second temptation is pretty similar. Verse 5, the devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. See, Satan offers Jesus here the very thing that Jesus is going to inherit. What did Psalm 2 promise? The whole of all of the nations are going to be given to you. And Satan says, ah, but I can give them to you now. If you worship me, I'll give them all to you now. You never have to go to the cross. You never have to suffer. Just worship me and they're all yours. See the temptation? It's to be the son without being the servant. It's the same with the third temptation. Verse 9, the devil led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Satan says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, jump off. God will protect you, won't he? And of course, God would have protected him, wouldn't he? Because Jesus is the son got to protect the king got to do anything to stop his king being hurt right except that it was god's plan that his king 
would be hurt. It was God's plan that at the end of this book, Jesus will go to Jerusalem and far worse than being hurt, Jesus is going to be beaten, he's going to be spat upon, he's going to be struck, he's going to be hung up on a cross and he's going to be crucified. Because that was how Jesus became the servant who died for the sins of his people. Dying on the cross was how Jesus was the servant who paid for the transgressions of his people. Jesus took the punishment that all of his people, including you and I, deserve for not taking God seriously. I mean, the fact is, when you think about it, we've all treated God terribly, haven't we? I've made myself the king of my life instead of letting God do it. And Jesus, the servant, paid for all of that. Jesus could have, in that moment, taken everything that Satan was offering him, and he would have been right to do it. He was the son. He could have eaten the bread. He could have taken the kingdoms. Nothing was out of his grasp. But no. Jesus knew that God wanted him to be not just the son, but also the servant. The servant who suffers pain and humiliation before his glory because that was how he would save his people. You see, Jesus' titles compel us to take him seriously. More seriously than any human being who has ever lived. I say this in all seriousness. If you know Jesus by the end of your degree and you fail every single subject, you will not have wasted your time. In fact, you'll have spent your time in the most valuable and profitable way because you have learned about God who is the king who became your servant. But if you get high distinctions all the way through your degree and you forget that Jesus is the God who became king and servant, then you will have wasted your time at university. The four most important words you need to hear for all of your degree are, Jesus is your God. You get that straight. The rest of university is a cinch. Pass or fail really doesn't matter in eternity. It's nice if you can pass, keep your parents happy. But pass or fail really doesn't matter in eternity. Jesus' titles tell you what really matters. What really matters is, do you worship him? Do you obey him? Do you trust him? At Uni Church, this is what we are all about. We're all about getting to know this extraordinary person, Jesus, better. If you're a Christian, I want to say keep coming back and hopefully you're going to be hanging out with a bunch of other clever people who are really going to push you in your knowledge of Jesus, in your love of Jesus, in your service. And I'll tell you, uni years can be the very best years of your life. They're wonderful years. If you're not a Christian yet, keep coming back. Get to know Jesus. We talk about him every single week here at Uni Church. We always open the Bible and we always read it as carefully as we can. Why not come back? Better still, you're going to hear about life. Why not come along to life? Because it's designed to help you to know what you want about Jesus. 
come and make the most serious man we ever were. Let's pray. Our great God, we praise you for who Jesus is, that he is God the Son. We praise you that Jesus is creator and judge. We praise you that when you spoke those words, let us create man in our image, you were talking to the Son, that Jesus was there with you. And we praise you that God the Son became the Son of God, that he became the great King. We praise you that you're going to give to Jesus all authority in heaven and earth, that the nations will belong to him, including us. And we praise you all the more because the Son became our servant. We praise you that at that moment of temptation, Jesus didn't take the bread. He didn't take the kingdom. He didn't try to be the Son without being the servant. We praise you that he followed your path and that he died on the cross in our place to pay for our sins, that we might be with you forever in eternity. We pray that whatever else we do in our lives, that we would get to know him. We pray that whether the world would judge us as a success or a failure, that we would judge those things by knowing 